Okay. Now just talk your normal volume and I will adjust gain. Okay. Uh, hello, Ken. Hello, Josh. Have you had any mayonnaise that you especially like lately? <laughs> well, I, I did have a pretty good aioli, which I believe oh, yeah. is yeah. more or less uh, the same thing. It it's is, just badly yes. disguised mayonnaise. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a branding exercise. Hi, it's Ken White. And it's Josh Barrow, and this is Serious Trouble. This is a very special taping of Serious Trouble because I'm actually sitting in Ken's office in downtown L.A. taping this show in person. Normally I'm in New York and Ken's in L.A., and so it's it's great to see you in person, Ken. Likewise, Josh, and welcome. Uh, sorry for the uh, mess. <laughs> That's quite all right. It's also a very exciting week because we get to talk about an issue that listeners have been emailing us for weeks asking us to talk about. And the standard answer I've been giving is this is a show that's fundamentally about litigation. And so if there's something that there might be a lawsuit over, we tend to wait until somebody actually sues. And so this is the fight between Ron DeSantis and the Walt Disney Company and the various efforts that Ron DeSantis has made to get back at Disney for having the temerity to express opinions about public policy in Florida. And so finally, Walt Disney has filed suit against Ron DeSantis and various other related defendants saying that he is illegally picking on them. We have a listener question about that. Hi, this is Scott from Philadelphia. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the First Amendment issues at stake in Disney's lawsuit in Florida. Presumably, the state does have the authority to do things like impose new property taxes for Disney's district. But at what point does a legitimate government action become illegitimate if it's done in retaliation for First Amendment protected speech? This case is kind of funny because DeSantis and the legislature have been extremely explicit that their actions were in response to Disney's speech. But how does the court make a decision like this when it's not as clear? Thanks. Yeah, so what what happened here is Disney has its own special municipality that was created decades ago, back when they were developing Walt Disney World. It was called the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It was controlled by the landowners, and the only landowner was Disney. So Disney basically got to issue its own bonds and and make its own development regulations and that, and that sort of thing. And then once Disney spoke out about this uh, parental rights and education bill, often referred to by opponents as the Don't Say Gay Law, the legislature took a number of steps, ultimately changing the control of that board to be put under the control of hand picked appointees of the governor, and the governor was making clear his efforts to base his, his intentions to basically screw with Disney uh, with his new control of that board. And so Disney is suing and saying this violates our constitutional rights. Right. I mean, a place to start, Josh, is that this whole concept of uh, special districts and improvement districts is not unique to Florida or Disney. It happens all over the country. It's basically a way to get a company or entity to take the lead in developing the infrastructure in an area in exchange for giving them more autonomy and power in that area. And that's what they did. Florida wants Disney to have a gigantic park, uh, but doesn't want to put in all the infrastructure for it. They give Disney the power to do it, and Disney gets more autonomy and has to spend more of its own money. So this is something that is not unique to Disney in the United States. What is fairly unique, as you said, is the record that uh, Ron DeSantis and Republicans in the Florida legislature and others have managed to make in this case. So it's very hard to win a case that says basically the legislature had the wrong motive 
for passing a law. Um, right, because Disney has no inherent right to this district. Exactly. It's, there's no constitutional right to the Reedy Creek Improvement District. It has to be that the legislature did this constitutionally permissible thing in changing the structure of the district for an impermissible purpose. Absolutely. And courts generally recognize that politicians bloviate, that uh, what they say a few times isn't necessarily a reliable evidence of what the law is actually about or motivated by. But here it's just over the top. Uh, Disney said it would continue to speak out against this law uh, that's very controversial, and that's very much in keeping with Disney's uh, social and political approach and what it sees as its audience and uh, its constituency. And uh, Ron DeSantis and the Florida Republicans really decided to, I think, make political hay out of this, portray mm. themselves as standing up to the mega corporation uh, for American values and, and all this type of thing, and just made an incredibly detailed uh, and vivid record that we are doing these things to teach Disney a lesson. Mm -hmm. um, not at all like, you know, the special district was wrong or is inappropriate or anything like that. I mean, they did make some comments about that also. But like, very you know, secondarily. Right, yeah. Uh, they made it clear they were doing this to teach company that they're not allowed to try to have a say in the state's laws, uh, the state's, frankly, anti-gay laws. And so, I mean, DeSantis went as far as to put a bunch of it into his book. So <laughs> I find, Josh, that I need to once again amend the list of things <laughs> where you shouldn't talk about the bad thing you did. Don't write a book about it, for instance. <laughs> I don't feel I should have to make these qualifications, but there you go. Yeah, it's, in Ron DeSantis's book, he says, if Disney wants to embrace woke ideology, it seems only fitting they should be regulated by Orange County. Orange County is the, the county that contains Orlando, Florida. That was a, a first effort to dissolve the district. They were going to turn it back over to the counties. Then they came up with the secondary idea that they'd create a new district that the governor controls. But in any case, that seems very clear. It's not about, you know, why should a private landowner be able to control a private government? It's about woke ideology. Right. It's about the position that they took on this on this issue where Disney, as a person, not a natural person, but a corporation, has a First Amendment right to speak out about those sorts of things. Right. Disney has a ton of employees in Florida, and it may be worried about how they are treated by the Florida government. And Disney is probably taking the stance, you know, nobody else gets to mistreat our employees. Only we get to mistreat <laughs> our employees. But, I mean, does it matter why Disney is speaking about it? I mean, no. so, so what if they have employees are not in the state? I mean, they can. Disney is welcome to speak out about policies even in a state where it doesn't do business. I mean, this is the most core First Amendment right to petition the government for redress of grievances, to offer your opinion about pending legislation. You do not get any more core, you know, uh, every single justice agrees that's part of the First Amendment than that. Uh, so, I mean, Bork would have said that that's core First Amendment. That's how far it is. So they file suit. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of the, the lawsuits mostly being ignored because it's terribly boring. It's about, mm. you know, violation of the contracts clause and the takings clause because you purported to vitiate these contracts. Yeah. That so we I guess the, the other thing we should note here is that in addition to changing the control of the district, before that, when they knew that they were going to lose control of the district, they had their existing board that they did control enter into long-term development agreements with the Disney company, basically giving it all sorts of permission to build new theme parks – 
uh, and blocking the, the board from making new rules that would change that for decades to come. And this had something to do with King Charles III, by the way. Uh, I thought we had gotten safely past this and I wasn't <laughs> going to have to talk about it. Yeah. So it's they got control of it not forever, but basically until sometime after all of his descendants die. Yes. So yeah, all of his currently living descendants. Exactly. This is about something that lawyers hate called the rule against perpetuities. And the concept of it is basically that we don't want you in your will saying what can be done with your real property for generations into the future. Like in the future, uh, only my descendants who go to this college mm -hmm. can inherit or something like that. Yeah. It's called the the dead hand, Mortmain. And so you don't want some dead guy controlling how the property gets used forever and ever. You want the, the property to shift to someone else who then makes decisions, uh, some live person. So what the rule is, is that you cannot control how a property vests in someone else's uh, possession any later than 21 years after a life in current being. Mm -hmm. So what this says is that these designations of property Disney is doing will survive until 21 years after the death of the last of King Charles III's current living descendants. Some of whom are very young. Some of whom are very young. Uh, infants, really. Uh, now, the problem here, of course, is they called him Charles III of England, which I understand from people in the UK is not technically correct. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, there's some arguments that could vitiate the whole thing. But really, the point is that this is just a way for a cute way for Disney to get around the rule against perpetuities or or put it to its bleeding outer edge of how long this control over the land could use. And then Florida's new hand-picked board of goons mm -hmm. uh, that DeSantis likes comes in and purports to vitiate the contract, to mm -hmm. throw it out. Right. And so basically there's a, there's a clause in the in the U.S. Constitution that says that states and the entities under states are not allowed to abrogate contracts. Right. Uh, the government can't just throw out a contract and refuse to pay you. So yeah, Donald this, Trump, if you want to do that, you can't do it while you're president. I this guess. comes from the, the Articles of Confederation era, where basically you would have uh, wealthy and connected individuals in the states who had obligations. Often they had debts that they owed to foreign creditors, and they would petition the state government to say, hey, can you just pass a law that says I don't have to pay this debt back? And Alexander Hamilton, among others, was concerned that that would make it difficult for the U.S. to borrow in foreign credit markets in the future. So they put this clause in the Constitution. And one of the things it has an impact on is basically saying that Ron DeSantis can't come in and rip up validly issued development agreements that uh, the Disney company had entered into with a municipality in Florida. Well, exactly. So it's a violation of the contracts clause. It's a violation of the takings clause. It says the government can't take your property or property interest without just compensation. Violation of due process, they're saying. Mm -hmm. But the, the one that gets all the headlines is the First Amendment violation, the right. concept they passed this law. Uh, and did this series of government actions explicitly uh, to retaliate against speech. And so Disney has to win only on one of those claims, right? It can, if it's for any of those reasons uh, impermissible, then they win? Well, it's more complicated because I guess if they went on a takings clause, the remedy could be a just payment. Okay. Uh, but uh, yeah, most of them, if they win, it's going to get vitiated. The broad consensus among legal commentators, uh, including those who know what they're talking about and those who don't, is that it's a very <laughs> strong case. Yeah. Most First Amendment commentators think it's a very strong case. And I mean, this is a hard thing to do, to vitiate a... Uh, 
a law passed by a legislature on the basis of motive. And it's this is like a law school exam where the professor said, <laughs> well, let's come up with a really improbable scenario where the evidence is perfectly clear. So we're not worrying about that. Right. Uh, so, you know, I question here to what extent this is something that DeSantis ever thought he could win or get away with. Mm -hmm. In other words, was this something where he calculated that we can win in the litigation over this? I have the right to do it. Or was it simply setting up a power move of me against Disney, the Republicans against Disney, the, you know, the, the real Americans against the woke left, this type of thing for political purposes? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting as a political matter, because the line that you're seeing a lot of Republicans take who are competing with Ron DeSantis for the presidential nomination. They are jumping on that and basically saying, well, Ron DeSantis went to war with Disney and lost. What an idiot. Um, and so if it was, you know, we talk a lot about performative litigation and Donald Trump in, in various ways has used performative litigation to his benefit. But this looks like it, it could be a situation where Ron DeSantis is getting into a lawsuit where the political goal is not actually achieved because of the weakness of the legal position that he's in. Exactly. I mean, we'll, we'll see exactly how that plays. But it's the anyway, that that political analysis is a little beyond the scope of this of this podcast. Um, I want to ask about how this is likely to proceed. So, I mean, you have this board that purports to have ripped up the development agreements that Disney entered into. There's going to be some litigation here. What if Disney wants to build a hotel? Is this going to be tied up in the courts for years before Disney gets the relief it's looking for, or are they likely to get relief pretty quickly? I, I suspect Disney will go for some sort of preliminary injunction mm -hmm. against enforcing the law or, or something like that. And I suspect the record is strong enough that they'll win. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, the it's likely that they're going to win this in some big move way fairly early. Uh, but you're right, to the extent they don't, that could be a gigantic problem for continued development. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this is something where Florida hurts itself to some extent. You know, Disney expanding increases Florida's tax base. Mm -hmm. It's all about bringing money into the state. So if Disney's not building hotels there, it may be building them someplace else. Mm -hmm. And then what about future actions by Florida's government? I mean, suppose that they lose here and then they come back and say, oh, we're passing a new law, but this one is purely for purposes that have to do with our views on how development should be regulated in the state of Florida. I mean, and, and there are also there are other laws. They're moving one right now that's trying to give the state new enforcement authority over the monorail at Walt Disney World. Will Disney have to amend its lawsuit in order to challenge any further laws that get passed? And then the, is the assumption by the court that the motivation is the same for all of these, even if they don't, even if they're more careful about the record in the future, the politicians are, and, and not saying we're doing this because Disney's too woke? Well, yes, they would have to amend the lawsuit or bring new ones. And in terms of the proof, first of all, I challenge the premise that DeSantis or Florida Republicans will be able to do new laws <laughs> without making an equally vivid record. But I think they're going to have to attenuate it quite a bit, and maybe mm -hmm. by years, before the implication from the current group of evidence is going to be sufficient to win the day. Mm -hmm. You know, Josh, we've gotten some questions on this case about taints. Can I address that real quick? Yes, yes. So- uh, Tell me about the taints. It's only about the taints. 
some people are asking if this is a bill of attainder, the root of which, of course, is taint. Um, <laughs> so uh, a bill of attainder, which is prohibited by the Constitution, is, you know, the, the idea is the legislature can't go out and say, we're passing a law that Ken White is guilty of whatever. Right. Uh, that's prohibited. And that used to be a thing in England. And it's one of the reasons that it's in the Constitution. Uh, some people are saying, isn't this a bill of attainder because it's directed at one company, uh, both, you know, by its terms and also by all the rhetoric behind it. The answer is a little complicated. It is aimed at one company. That's true. But first of all, it's not completely clear that the Bill of Attainder rule in the Constitution applies to corporations. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some dispute over that. Also, it's not completely clear that even if it does apply to corporations, that this type of legislation would be a bill of attainder. The idea of a bill of attainder is it judges you guilty of a crime. Mm -hmm. it, it skips judicial process. That's not really what this is about. This is more like revoking a benefit they've previously given. And if you think about it, if this were a prohibited bill of attainder, then once you gave someone like Disney a benefit like the special district, you could never revoke it right. because that would be a bill of attainder. So my take on it is it's probably not a bill of attainder. There is no taint issue here. There's also, it's it's fairly common to see legislation that is drawn in these ways that creates a category that in fact has only one entity within it. Like in New York, you can pass a law that says it only applies to municipalities with at least a million residents, which means only New York City. Right. Um, or sometimes when you have efforts to do labor regulation related to large employers, you get something that says, you know, a private employer with more than X number of employees, and that applies only to Walmart within the jurisdiction. And my understanding is you can do that sort of Thing. Generally, yes. There was some litigation over this issue on what a bill of attainder is many years ago, earlier in Rupert Murdoch's career, when certain mm -hmm. moves, uh, certain laws directed at the FCC and who they could or couldn't apply or, or make changes for were clearly directed just at the Murdoch empire. Mm-hmm. Ken, I have some good news for listeners this week. This week's episode of Serious Trouble is free for all listeners. Excellent. Yeah. We want to thank all of you for listening, but we especially want to thank those of you who are paying subscribers because you make this show possible. And if you're not a paying subscriber, you should consider becoming one. You can become one for $6 a month or $60 a year at SeriousTrouble.show. You get every full episode of Serious Trouble, more than 40 episodes a year. And you get to join our comments section where there's, there's really a lot of interesting conversation that goes on in there. Yeah, Josh, you know, normally when you say uh, you get to join our comments section, it's uh, that's like saying you get a free box of shit in the mail every week. Uh, <laughs> but our comment section is actually excellent. Uh, a lot yeah. of cool people show up. They're engaged. They send us questions that we answer. And sometimes, like, we'll talk about some big issue and the person who knows about that issue shows up. It's like last time when David Nimmer, who basically is copyright in America, showed up to answer our question. Yeah, that was that was only in the full paid episode last week. Right. So. Uh, again, you know, that's one of the advantages of, of being a paid subscriber. You get to hear about the copyright issues surrounding Afro Man and his Lemon Pound Cake song from a bona fide copyright law expert. We uh, often source questions for the show that come from listeners from the comments section. Some of them come in by email. Ken, how, if people want to email the questions in, where should they email them? It's a Rico hotline at serioustrouble.show. Yeah. 
Other times people ask them in the comments section and Josh or I will jump in and answer those and yeah. engage. Yeah. And often we, we reach out and we ask people, would you, would you record that question so that we can respond to it as audio on the air? I want to thank Scott who sent in that question we did at the top of the show today. We're going to talk in a little bit about reaction to the E. Jean Carroll uh, civil case from Mitch Epner, a, a litigator who's a friend of the show uh, and who also pops up in our, in our comments section from time to time. Yeah, Mitch is a uh, law school classmate, knows what he's talking about, and uh, he's another subscriber. We're also going to talk about Alec Baldwin later, and that was, you know, that was a really great example of community engagement there, where one of the key issues that we discussed, a problem with the prosecution's case that ultimately we're going to talk this week about how that case got dismissed against Alec Baldwin. Um, one of the problems where they charged something that they really couldn't charge him with, that was raised by one of our listeners who emailed in, Caitlin Smith, a uh, public defender in the state of New Mexico. Right. And we traced uh, how it went from there to a variety to apparently uh, Alec Baldwin's lawyers. Yes. And as I recall, uh, that was one of those times when we said, I don't really know about this. Maybe someone will tell us. Uh, so once again, uh, Josh, our fundamental laziness has uh, changed the course <laughs> of legal history. Yeah. So again, thank you for listening. And, and if you want to join that community of, uh, of commenters and uh, supporters of the show, again, go to SeriousTrouble.show and uh, we encourage you to upgrade. Thanks for listening. Let's talk about Donald Trump, uh, who lost a uh, well, it's actually it's not a defamation suit. Uh, we, we have dumb defamation cases listed here. But Donald Trump sued his niece, Mary Trump, and he sued The New York Times for some articles uh, alleging that he engaged in tax fraud. But the torts he alleged here, he didn't actually allege that the articles were defamatory. It was something about tortious interference. Yeah. So his theory was that Mary Trump years ago was bound by a confidentiality clause and a settlement agreement of an old family trust litigation, mm. that she violated that by turning over certain records to the New York Times that they used to run stories about how Trump did all sorts of tax shenanigans in the 80s and 90s. And what he sued for, very clearly trying to evade uh, the anti slap statute in New York, was for tortious interference uh, with a contract, aiding and abetting tortious interference, negligent supervision of the reporters, and unjust enrichment. So he's he's trying to plead around mm -hmm. defamation and say, no, the wrong here isn't the defamation. The wrong here is that you induced Mary Trump to break her confidentiality clause and give you this. And this was something of a test of how New York's relatively new, very good anti-slap law was going to work. Right. So this this is the law that makes it so that if you file a lawsuit to try to stop somebody from engaging in protected speech, uh, that the lawsuit can be thrown out relatively quickly and you can be responsible for the attorney's fees of the other side. Exactly. And anti-slap is an early off-ramp from a bogus defamation case or other case attacking free speech. Mm -hmm. The thing is, California's had it for like 30 years, so the law on it's very well developed. New York's new muscular anti-slap is relatively new. Mm -hmm. So the the sort of the encrustment of case law on it is is very thin. And But the judge here went the way that California courts have. It says you can't plead around this if the gravamen of the claim is about 
protected activity. And here it's about news gathering. It's about New York Times reporters, you know, getting a story from an informant. Then that falls under the anti-slap statute and this doesn't work. And the judge said basically, look, uh, the law has been clear for decades that reporters can get stuff from people and print it even if those people are violating some sort of duty of confidentiality or, or other duty. That goes all the way to the Pentagon Papers case. Mm -hmm. So unless the, the, he could show the New York Times, like, taught her how to hack into Trump's account uh, <laughs> to get the, the documents, then it's protected speech. So uh, the judge ultimately says this is all bogus. It fails under the First Amendment and the anti-slap law. It also fails for a number of other ways that they mm. pled it badly. And so not only does the whole thing get dismissed, but you're going to pay attorney's fees. And so how much are we talking about in fees in a case like this? How much is he going to be on the hook for? Well, the New York Times tends to hire heavy hitters and stuff like this is expensive to litigate. I would say it's going to be at least 150,000 uh, going up from there. Remember when Trump years ago on our last show mm. uh, was sued by Stormy Daniels for defamation, won an anti-slap here in California, his lawyers uh, charged 300,000. Right. And that was a pretty simple, straightforward issue. This one's much more complicated. So I, I think it's going to be in the hundreds of thousands. So, I mean, w when Donald Trump filed this lawsuit, I assume he didn't expect to win it. I assume the point was sort of to punish Mary Trump and to some extent the New York Times and force them into court to litigate. And even if he has to pay $150,000, if his objective is either vengeance or if it's to discourage other people from providing information to newspapers because they don't want to get dragged into a lawsuit, I'm wondering if this is really an effective deterrent for him. Well, you're right. Well, first of all, I think Donald Trump's lawyers probably didn't expect to win. I don't know whether Donald Trump expected to win because his mental state is uh, <laughs> a mystery. But you're right. You, you point out exactly the problem that for people like Trump, people engage in performative litigation, litigation that's designed to uh, energize a base, uh, litigation that's designed to attract donations, things like that. The prospect of paying the other side's fees is not an effective deterrent anymore. So um, that's why maybe uh, some states, you know, have penalties in anti-slap statutes. Problem is most of the penalties allowed are pretty minor. Mm -hmm. So we may need to find new ways to uh, to handle this. Uh, Mike Pence also uh, appeared before the grand jury that's sitting in Washington, D.C., that special counsel Jack Smith has that's looking into matters related to uh, the efforts to overturn the result of the 2020 election. And so... The former president had been seeking to try to block that testimony. That motion was denied. So he testified for like five hours and the special counsel actually personally attended the testimony. Yes. Jack Smith was there himself in the grand jury room. Mm -hmm. But who wouldn't be? I mean, Mike Pence is dreamy. Um, <laughs> well, um, no, it's probably the most important. He's very broad shouldered. Yes. It's the most important witness Jack Smith is going to have, likely. So yeah. it's not surprising that the head guy himself is there in the grand jury room, quite possibly asking the questions. Five hours is a long grand jury testimony. It is substantial. That is not just flailing around trying to see if you can find something incriminating. That is, mm -hmm. there's something substantive going on. I think it's also notable, and a lot of people have pointed this out, that Pence agreed to testify immediately after the Court of Appeals rejected uh, Trump's emergency application to, to stay the lower court decision and block the testimony. So he could have 
kind of dragged his feet a little longer and waited to see if Trump was going to go to the Supreme Court. Huh. He didn't. He he went in pretty quickly. Which is interesting because Pence himself had also fought efforts to bring him in to testify. Sort of. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, he, he resisted it. He raised objections, but he did not go all in. You know, we've seen for years and years how Trump and his lawyers can slow things down and block them through the appellate process and then going to the Supreme Court and, and so on. Pence did not do that super aggressive stuff. So, mm. I mean, my take on it was he was making the gesture that's expected of him, uh, but no more. Okay. There's been some news coverage that suggests that Jack Smith must be getting close to being done because Mike Pence would be like at the, the apex of the list of witnesses that he would be seeking to interview and, unless he was seeking to interview Donald Trump himself. Can we infer that? Uh, it's a reasonable argument, but it's not certain. So, yes, in general, you you go up the pyramid. You talk to the least significant people first. And so when you talk to the most significant person, you want to know all the facts there are to know, mm -hmm. have seen everyone else's story, seen all the documents, that type of thing. There are countervailing issues sometimes, like when can we get Mike Pence? Is this our only opportunity to get Mike Pence? You know, whatever it is that might apply. So it's not a certainty, uh, but it's an indication of at least a mature investigation that is in its later stages. And so then if there are charges, then presumably those will be announced and we'll see them. If he decides not to charge Donald Trump, when would we learn that? It depends on what he and the Justice Department decide to do uh, in the sort of comparable situation of the Robert Mueller investigation. They made an announcement and mm -hmm. Mueller did a report. He sent it to the attorney general. You know, there was certain amounts of that were revealed and then sent to Congress. I suspect it would be something like that. It wouldn't just simply disappear without any word whatsoever. The attorney general is going to think that the public interest is in some sort of announcement or some sort of uh, indication of what's going to happen. Let's talk about the civil trial uh, over E. Jean Carroll's rape allegation against Donald Trump. Uh, this trial has been ongoing. We, th we think it's going to go to the jury next week. And so the the key part of this trial was was right at the beginning, was E. Jean Carroll's testimony herself, her direct testimony, and then her cross-examination by Joe Tacopina, uh, Donald Trump's attorney. What have you made of the reports of E. Jean Carroll's testimony and what the jury is likely to have made of it? Well, indications from people who watch was that uh, Eugene Carroll was very convincing, very composed, uh, held up extremely well against cross-examination, and was basically all you would want a witness to be in this circumstance. But, you know, this is a thing where we just don't know what the jury is thinking. Uh, this is a classic gut check by jurors about whether or not they believe this story. And jurors tend to, you know, big picture, um, I believe this person, I don't believe that person, and then everything else, I'll interpret the rest of it to support my priors that I've just formed. So it's all down to how the jury takes her as a person, how they interpreted her, and how they take the basic scenario where she's coming forward with something that happened many years ago. It's a case that is very different in this cultural moment than it would have been 10 years ago even, uh, with the Me Too movement, with all the trials we've seen where cases that previously would have been seen as very weak 
have succeeded in finding people liable or criminally guilty for for sexual misconduct. So I, I, I think it's uh, 10 years ago, I would have said, wow, that's a super long shot. Now, I, um, I think that if the jury interpreted her the way most of the commentators seem to, that, you know, Trump is in trouble on this. But it's all down to, it really was all down to her. That was the moment. So there was a very aggressive cross-examination from Joe Tacopina, and the reaction to it in in press has been sort of uniformly negative, including uh, your friend Mitch Epner, who's been writing about the trial for the Daily Beast. Uh, His headline was, Trump lawyer Joe Tacopina's terrible cross-examination gets even worse, um, basically arguing that, you you know, in, in addition to being sort of, you know, a gross display. I mean, you know, it's a civil trial over a rape. It may right. necessarily be a gross display, but he's contending that it was it was an ineffective approach to trying to convince the jury uh, that her claims were not credible. I see where Mitch is coming from. And, you know, to be fair, Mitch was a sex crimes prosecutor for the U.S. Attorney's Office, so that he probably carries that experience with him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure what a non-gross cross-examination would look like in this case. You're ultimately dealing with the only thing you can say is that she's making it up. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to attack her credibility. And so all the things that you can use to attack her credibility are things that are part of the cultural discussion of sexual abuse and how women react to it and and things like that. So you have to say that, you know, she didn't report it to the police. You have to say that uh, she didn't scream or, or something like that. So you don't have much choice but to lean into some things that are unpopular and controversial and hope that it resonates with the jury. Um, So I'm not, although Mitch has been tearing it up with his analysis of this trial at the Daily Beast, I don't know what else Tacopina could have really done that would be effective. But you have to go after her credibility. There's no other way to win the case. Well, I mean, I think part of Mitch's contention is basically that Tacopina should have done less. There are a couple of examples that Mitch talks about where there are inconsistencies in E. Jean Carroll's public comments and he says that Takapina did a relatively good job drawing that out. The problem was that it was surrounded by all this other stuff. I mean, for example, Takapina kept trying to get her to admit, uh, and I put admit in quotes, to the idea that the thing she describes having happened to her was extraordinary or incredible. And E. Jean Carroll basically agrees, yes, this was extraordinary. She indeed found it very surprising that Donald Trump raped her at Bergdorf Goodman. Right. And that that, that was not effective, even and if the effort was to convince people that she was not credible. She's stipulating to the idea that what happened to her was bizarre. Right. I I think that's going to the argument that it was so extraordinary that there's no way she wouldn't report it or we wouldn't hear about it for for 30 years. Mm -hmm. Um, Josh, I figured if I'm going to tell Mitch that he's wrong, it's only fair I give him a chance to rebut and defend himself. So I reached out and asked him to record something about how he would have handled that cross-examination better. Hi, Ken and Josh. Uh, Here are the three areas that I think uh, would have been fruitful areas to go into. First, her work as a scriptwriter. You stated that you were a writer for Siren Night Live, correct? And that was before 1995, correct? Now, being a comedy writer requires imagination, correct? It requires understanding how an audience will receive material. Isn't that correct? It requires being able to imagine a plausible situation that will be accepted by an audience. True? And you were good at it, weren't you? Your work was nominated for an Emmy. Isn't that true? 
And it's hard to get a job as a writer for Saturday Night Live, correct? Second area, uh, Hunter S. Thompson. Ms. Carroll, Hunter S. Thompson was an important figure in your life, correct? You actually wrote a biography about him, true? The title was Hunter, The Strange and Savage Life of Hunter S. Thompson, correct? Now, Hunter S. Thompson was famous for creating gonzo journalism. Isn't that true? One key attribute of gonzo journalism was that the author would put themselves at the center of the story, correct? And, for example, when Hunter S. Thompson wrote his book on the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, he put himself in the middle of the story, true? And this was different from usual journalism, where the author would do a lot to keep themselves out of the story, correct? Now, and another aspect of gonzo journalism was that the author would sometimes include fantasy sequences that never occurred, correct? When you wrote your biography of Hunter S. Thompson, you engaged in your own gonzo journalism, correct? You interspersed chapters of interviews about Thompson with people who actually knew him with gonzo chapters of Hunter S. Thompson interacting with a fictional writer, correct? And that fictional writer was based on you, true? And those gonzo chapters included Hunter Thompson sexually abusing the character that was based on you, correct? That was fiction, right? That never happened, did it? third area, work for Roger Ailes at the America's Talking Cable Network. Ms. Carroll, you worked for Roger Ailes at the America's Talking Cable Network in the mid-90s, correct? You were trained while you were there on how to project authenticity, true? You were trained on how to project honesty, correct? You were trained on how to draw an audience into a story, true? Now, you never accused Roger Ailes of sexual harassment, correct? And you never accused Roger Ailes of rape, correct? And finally, you never served as a witness for anyone who accused Roger Ailes of sexual misconduct, correct? So if I had been given Joe Tacopina's opportunity, that is how I would have done it, or at least some of it. Okay, so maybe Mitch does have a reasonable point that the cross-examination could be done better. Um, Notice how he didn't make that big and dramatic and accusatory and mean, but just very deftly made the point that this is somebody who has a background in making up stories. Uh, That would have been very effective. Um, Donald Trump not only is not, has not been present for these proceedings, he is not testifying in the proceedings. Eugene Carroll did not call him as a witness. He is not appearing as a witness for himself, nor is he presenting any other witnesses. Does that surprise you? 
it does not surprise me that he is not testifying, mm -hmm. you know, because he is a he is a, the dumpster fire of all dumpster fires uh, and would be impossible to control on the stand, would make things worse. Uh, there's no client control there whatsoever. You mm -hmm. don't put you don't put someone who is completely off the hook, uncontrolled on the stand. You never know what they'd say. You know, he's going to he's going to get on the stand, say something even worse than I didn't rape her because she's not my type, which is more or less mm -hmm. what he said. So that part doesn't surprise me. The fact that they put on no evidence does surprise me a little bit. I think the vibe they're going for is the idea that this is so clearly bogus that we don't have to say anything. We won't even dignify it with a case. Now, that's something you can kind of get away with in criminal cases because of the prosecution's burden of proof of beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And because of all the emphasis that you know the prosecution has to do everything, the defense doesn't have to do anything. It's a bigger lift in a civil case yeah. uh, where you know the, it's a 51% preponderance of the evidence standard where the defense is expected to be able to put on evidence if, it's, if it has evidence. And generally, I think juries expect some level of evidence. And it would be relatively easy to putter around the edges and come up with some stuff that emphasizes uh, statements that Eugene Carroll has made that show bias or, or anything else. So it is a little surprising that they just went completely no evidence, no witnesses. Well, I mean, especially because it's also a case where the the Access Hollywood tape has been admitted into evidence. Right. And so you have Donald Trump on tape describing that he, you know, he describing this. describing sexually assaulting women. Yes. As something that he does. And then you also have the public reputation that Donald Trump has, where I think that, you know, it's likely that some jurors enter with the idea that it is plausible that he raped that he raped someone. Right. And so you, I would think that if I were a juror, I would want to hear from Donald Trump saying I didn't do this. That if you know if you really if if he really didn't rape Eugene Carroll, shouldn't he show up in court and say so? Well, but I mean, it's a double-edged sword. First of all, if a juror hears this evidence is inclined to believe that Trump is super rapey, uh, which I think is the way most people take them. Mm. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence that can move them off of it. I mean, what evidence can you put on that Trump has not said these things, that he doesn't act like this, that he's not a colossal boor? Um, mm -hmm. uh, you really can't. So flailing around at that only really serves to emphasize the point. Uh, so I see why they wouldn't call Trump. And because also when you put him on to say, I didn't do it, he's going to get cross-examined. He's going to lose control and say all sorts of terrible things. It is more questionable why they don't put on more evidence about, you know, the circumstances, all the stuff that E. Jean Carroll has done. They could have dwelled more on uh, how she praised uh, Trump's show, The Apprentice, and loved mm. it, stuff like that. That's what you would think, just to make it seem that it, what you want to convey to the jury is we have evidence, too. You know, not only have they not put enough, but there's this wealth of all this other stuff that goes mm -hmm. here. That would generally be the strategy. So do you think it's likely that Carol is going to win this suit? Juries, man, I don't know. Uh, I, I think 10 years ago, I would have said no. Mm -hmm. Now, I think, yes, it's likely, but not certain. And then assuming that she does win, there will be damages? Yes, Substantial damages, I'm sure. If a jury believes it happened, they're going to award her a lot of money. And then will Trump have viable avenues for appeal? Uh, avenues for appeal, yes. Viable, uh, that's 
questionable. You know, uh, Trump's attorney, uh, Joe Tacopina, filed a rather whiny uh, <laughs> motion, letter motion, asking for a mistrial for a variety of things. Basically, judge, you're being mean to me, uh, more or less, for things like you keep sustaining argumentative objections to my questions. Um, you know, you jumped in and made a comment that kind of made fun of me. Yeah. And that's how judges are. I'm, I'm sorry. It's, that's Those are not serious arguments. I do think that the judge's decision to let in the prior bad acts evidence, um, you know, witnesses about other sexual assaults by Trump, that's vulnerable to appeal. The standard of review is not terribly good for Trump, mm -hmm. but it's not the worst argument ever. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's I you would take your shot. Uh, I think it's unlikely to win, but it's not certain to lose. Uh, finally, this week, let's talk about Alec Baldwin, uh, who is no longer being prosecuted for involuntary manslaughter related to the the fatal shooting on the Rust film set in New Mexico. And so the the premise here in the case was basically, you know, Alec Baldwin held the gun. It fired while it was in his hand. It, it killed the cinematographer on this film. And Alec Baldwin insisted that he had never pulled the trigger on this gun. And the idea had been that it was impossible for this gun to fire if you didn't pull the trigger. But then it, it turned out that, in fact, the gun had been modified and maybe it really was possible that the gun misfired in, in that way and that further undermined the state's case. Right. So remember that we talked about how Alec Baldwin sort of talked himself into trouble mm -hmm. by saying, I would never pull the trigger on a gun that I was pointing at someone because I've been trained that's dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so they say, well, this FBI report says this gun cannot fire unless you pull the trigger. And therefore, you know, Alec Baldwin has admitted that he's done something that was dangerous. He encountered a known risk that's involuntary manslaughter. Mm -hmm. But now it comes out that they somehow fiddled with this trigger, that they modified mm -hmm. it somehow. That dramatically undermines the FBI's report. It, it makes it questionable uh, whether they can show beyond a reasonable doubt that he deliberately pulled the trigger mm. and, and was intentionally reckless. And so uh, that undermines the case. This is not a case that has gone smoothly no. for the prosecution. Remember that they they charged him with an enhancement uh, to the sentence that uh, wasn't yet in effect when the incident happened, which is a no-no. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, had a problem with a, a disqualified special prosecutor. They just had a, a raft of issues. So this has gone from bad to worse. They've dropped it. They can refile it if they develop evidence about whether or not the gun could have fired. But for now, this is a big loss for them. And and then also they appointed a special prosecutor for this case who was legally right. ineligible in the state of New Mexico, and they had to withdraw that person. The whole prosecution has looked quite amateur. Is this just like it's just because it's a state prosecution and that's how they go? Or was, is this unusually amateur? It's not because it's a state prosecution. Um, so prosecutors have problems with celebrities. Um Prosecutors historically make bad decisions in prosecutions against celebrities. Prosecutors who, you know, are anticipating big headlines, mm -hmm. maybe political futures for being the person who took down Alec Baldwin or whoever can <laughs> can kind of get buck fever and um, make stupid decisions. And uh, the 
the leadership of DA's offices can get overly involved in micromanaging of cases that involve celebrities. <laughs> and the leadership of DA's offices often make dumb decisions about strategy that actual line prosecutors would not make. Mm -hmm. So I suspect those are more the factors. They're, they're probably perfectly competent uh, in prosecuting run-of-the-mill cases, uh, which, you know, given judges and jurors' attitudes, uh, they, they only need to be minimally competent to get convictions. So the the charges were dismissed without prejudice. So that means in theory, if they developed more evidence, they could charge Alec Baldwin again in this case? That's right. There's no um, double jeopardy because uh, no jury was seated. Uh, they dismissed it without prejudice. They could come back. There's a statute of limitations issue, but that is it for a while. Sooner or later, though, I think once you've brought it and then dismissed it, mm -hmm. you're going to have to have a higher level of certainty that you're going to win before you get involved again. Yeah. And and there were, as we've discussed on the show previously, the, there were already difficulties with that anyway. Absolutely. And so Alec Baldwin has a super aggressive, very good legal team here. He's got Quinn Emanuel, which is one of the most expensive and aggressive and, you know, litigator firms. He's got the lawyer who uh, has successfully defended Elon Musk. So, you know, he's used to bad judgment. Um, <laughs> and he, he's not going to be easy prey for this DA's office ever. Uh, I think we can leave it there this week. Ken, thank you so much for having me to your office to tape this episode. Well, thank you for coming, Josh. Serious Trouble is created and produced by Very Serious Media. That's me and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our theme music is by Joshua Mosher. Thanks for listening. We'll be back more soon. See you next time.